gingivitis has been eroding the gum line of this great nation long enough. We can no longer be a nation indentured. Our very salivation is at stake. You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. Krusty Krab is unfair. Mr. Krabs is in there, standing at the concession, plotting his oppression. We can't just have a march and rally and then go have a beer. Life in this society, being at best, another bore. There remains the civic-minded, thrill-seeking, responsible females, only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex. You picked the wrong femboy to mess with. Go to the Bureau of Free Love. It's not like a free love Soviet. Yeah, the bureaucracy got, oh, you got to fill out this paperwork. Well, when do I get the free love? No, you got to fill this up and you got to come back next Tuesday. You got to interview one. It's a bureaucracy. But it's free love in the end. Uh, Lucario, this is Spiritualist, possible just-time voter. Ness and Lucas are in Japan. Hey, there's politics outside the U.S., you know. There's left-wing movements all over the world, okay? And I just think that's important. Sonic would be an accelerationist. In Jigglypuff, intersectional feminist queen. Oh, sure, let's see. I'm an elk, a mason, a communist. I'm the president of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance for some reason. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. And the real question is whether we have the will. I'm here to... Dan Platt, your host of the Three Left Show. That is, in fact, what you're listening to. Leftist analysis, radical revolutionary commentary on news or various topics of local, national, and state and international import. Um, For the curious or the committed, going in for a different direction, um, the three lefts stand for anarchism, socialism, and ecology, that means I'm a multi-tendency leftist. I don't subscribe to any particular super dogmatic ideology. always try to see a lot of little bit. And I also understand a lot of other ideologies I disagree with. I do not fear or hate anyone because I understand. Something uh, that I could point out, you know, in um, certain conversations, like, you know, the dark side is, is hate and fear, mostly based on a, on a foundation of ignorance. That seems to be what's missing. Uh, most of the time, a bit of immaturity, you know, but that means an ignorance of emotional intelligence or media literacy or other types of literacies. We all just need to be more literate, and hopefully this program helps in some small way. I'll start with that in uh, the weekend. I took part in a Twitch panel on leftist infighting. The host kind of came at it a certain direction because he he's the, his name is Taj, the one of the hosts or the main hosts of called Bars and Joysticks, which covers rap, gaming, and other pop culture stuff. And uh, he's a sock dem, Bernie Crowd, you could say. But obviously, he's probably past that. That would be a different conversation to have with him. This conversation was with me and among other five other people. Uh, one other was also organizer activist like myself but uh eight years my my junior she was 24 or something like that and and obviously you know blows me out of the water in some ways based on 
when she started and how she started. You know, she was homeless and she basically did need to do these things to survive. But the, she kind of had a nice positive spin to it that, like, even in the situation she was in, she was able to organize a mutual aid network. Why isn't someone with a full-time job able to do this on their weekends? They should. They must. Nice little, uh, she was, she had a lot to offer, I can tell you that. Um, and I tried to uh, do it justice, uh, do the group justice by offering what I uh, had to offer, which was anecdotes about Occupy and other anarchist communes or other potential communes that split up due to interpersonal conflict, organizations that split because they're not able to come to consensus on some strategic or ideological point, or people leave uh, organizations, that's thus weakening them, so maybe they don't dis- aren't destroyed, but... And uh, it comes down to me, of course, there's many other things talked about, uh, so I encourage you to look it up. I am sharing it on my Facebook pages and eventually on YouTube. Hopefully I'll get there uh, to that. But I was having trouble downloading uh, a longer YouTube video uh, when I was trying to do it with uh, some of the other streams that I was guest spotting on. Uh, maybe it's time I start actually hosting my own and, uh, and some of the friends that I'm making. Uh, so maybe I'll get there. Uh, at the moment, I'm pretty content to just kind of follow other people's lead at this moment, not take the responsibility since, well, I'm part of the management team here. I kind of have things I'm responsible for. And there's always kind of you know, a limit to how much you want to take on and uh, devote your mental, emotional landscape to, right? So, because uh, I know how to avoid burnout. And that was one of the topics that came up as well. But good facilitation, good meetings, good organizational structure, or at least um, you know, knowing how that's done. Uh, that it should be horizontal, um, ways of doing meetings, you know, that we weren't kind of doing this panel discussion. It was pretty free form, and thus it could be pointed out after the fact that um, we didn't really stay on topic that well. But Taj didn't care. It was his game, and it was fine. Because we basically, instead of talking about infighting, we mostly talked about how to not infight, which is all the better. So finally, let me get to the topic for this episode. So... Over the past month or so, there's been some technical problems, um, which should be coming to an end very soon, very rapidly, as some uh, uh, relevations have occurred that have cleared up some of the confusions that kind of stopped certain problems from being fixed. Isn't that, uh, you know, the way people are kind of waiting for such like a epiphany that will solve national or life problems? Anyway, I lost a a show or two, (laughs) and uh, one was on housing, and, uh, yeah, decommodifying it, how to decommodify and talking about that. Uh, what was the other one about unions and co-op organizing? The, not so much the doing of it, but just news of it happening. So I'll return to those, I hope to. I mean, it was some good content, and I don't want to lose it as far as what the articles were. But I'm going to push forward with my uh, also transportation topic you know, in the row of episodes that are not just about organizing and how to do leftism right and what what are socialists going to do? And this, you know, the program for socialism, right? That this program, you know, sometimes is. Sometimes I also want it to be a, okay, are you just moderately interested in what a left-winger thinks about some of these things and how they come out of these problems? Uh, with uh, And you may have questions that come from a good, constructive place about transportation. Uh, one thing that kind of comes uh, out is 
where people's goalposts are on what successful transportation is uh, policy-wise. Maybe it's just less deaths. You know, out of the 30,000 killed in cars, maybe lowering that is, well, something that's it's good, right? Not saying it isn't, but it shouldn't be the only goal. Uh, in fact, if we make our transportation system, say, more efficient or cleaner, perhaps it will also be safer without even trying instead of having to vote all of your resources to just making driving in individual cars safer or vehicles. But first, how about a discussion of why slash how highways? How highways? How are the highways built? Now, not everyone has the great luxury of having written a paper about you know, how the suburbs were subsidized by not only government, but that government policy was car was the car industry's policy the policy of of pressuring slash buying out uh, not so much buying out that's not the right terms but you know almost a, a functional buying out of localities to rip up the good public transportation they had in in a pressure to you know do what the future was and the future was cars it's what people wanted well it's what gm wanted but gm got the ear of federal government Anyway, I kind of covered that in a separate episode. I think I played a YouTube video to that effect. Now here's from a kind of a different angle. So the source is, the publication is called The Metropole, which is the official blog of the Urban History Association. This is, of course, well, not of course, in New York City. At least uh, they have a picture of the George Washington Bridge in New York, so um, that's what I'm assuming. So, uh, it's called The Myth and the Truth About Interstate Highways. This is written by Sarah Joe Peterson. Editors note, this is the first in a series of articles during April that examine the construction of the interstate highway system over the past seven decades. The series, titled Justice in the Interstates, opens up new areas for historical inquiry, which also calling on policymakers and transportation and urban planning professions, never mind the rest of the citizenry, right? Uh, to hold themselves accountable for its legacies. Additionally, additional entries in the series will be added to the bottom of this page. So this is an article by professionals for professionals. It definitely has the tone of a well-researched history paper. It's very dry. I will hope to spice it up as I go. I will hopefully, I'll be skipping some paragraphs. What else can I say before I start this is a note about, you know, kind of comes across with my little snark there that saying, look, professionals doing top-down policy is kind of the problem. And just because you're informing them better, which, of course, is fine and good, uh, isn't enough. You know, to, to solve the issues caused by hierarchical policy requires democratic policy. Bottom-up, grassroots activism from the rest of the citizenry is the most efficacious I'm using that word correctly, the most efficient and the most just way of, well, getting justice for these uh, failures or mishaps. Okay, starting the article. The transportation industry in the United States is still steeped in a myth about cities and highways, especially interstate highways. The myth goes something like this. Interstate highways were intended to be a system for inner city travel or interstate but they had unintended effects for cities because they became used inappropriately for travel within urban areas. 
I think of this myth as the dance of the intended and the unintended. But perhaps at uh, Capital Transit recently put it better, the story of St. Dwight and the legend of the true original interstate highway system. That was good and pure. Now, the primary myth comes with convenient parallels, corollaries. First one, everything bad about the interstates in cities is actually the fault of urban renewal and local city leaders. Second, analysis of cost dictates which neighborhoods fell to the bulldozers and C, urban expressways were so new that mistakes were made, but public protests in the 60s brought needed reforms. Like many myths, these contain something that is sort of true, but there's also a lot about the myth and its side topics that was intentionally constructed. You know, papering over your uh, crimes. Now, I've traced at least one source of it back to the mid-70s, and tragically, to what would eventually become the official work of the history published by the federal DOT. I'm aware that I'm dispensing here with the usual detached tone of historical scholarship. I have spent most of the decades of my professional life within or on the fringes of the transportation industry, defined here to include both the public and private sectors. I lived inside the myth, this myth for much of my career as a historian. I've watched the evidence mount, challenging this, these myths. However, the myth still serves its purpose. It prevents the industry having to confront its sins that, it were com that was committed in the name of building the highway system of course, most significantly against black Americans. The myth's damage isn't only in the self-serving absolution that it gives the industry and the federal government. It is also in the, you know, by blaming the little guys, in this case, maybe mayors and, and other things, other people. It, see, the big fry blame the small fry, the small fry blame the big fry, and nothing actually gets fixed or the crimes are not just, it's just, oh, and then it just, it's swept under the rugs, so to speak. It is also in the knowledge about urban transportation, knowledge that is easily accessible in the 40s and 50s, but it was erased. I posit that the moral failures around racial justice and the turning away from urban transportation, meaning trains and people-oriented transport, are connected. In addition, I fear that the myth and its fractal twin, the decades of silence, because, you know, hey, no one gets blamed, but no one talks about it. You know, no one talks, everybody walks. Continue to shape American transportation policy. You know, hey, there's no problem if you don't talk about it. Except for all the people that actually get harmed. The Biden administration has made a public commitment to advancing racial equity. Nominally speaking. The Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, has spoken of past harms in his public appearances. Credit two should go to Anthony. Okay, oh, we're starting a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New day for Democrats, I guess. Ever, ever more progressive. <laughs> but we've been here before. In '98, the Federal Highway Administration adopted a policy that required incorporating justice for radical minority and low-income populations. Wow, all the way back in the '90s. In all its programs, policies, and activities. Now, as someone who works in policy, I understand the inclination to move forward with new initiatives without stopping to take the time to articulate what happened, significantly in the past. In this case, though, if the transportation professions just move forward, we will never examine how the past is still embedded in the present. You know, if you don't go after the root cause, then you're not actually solving the problem. You're just putting ketchup on garbage and eating the garbage. Now, as a transportation professional, 
I'm not categorically opposed to urban expressways. However, all infrastructure projects create winners and losers. The moral test for society is how it selects and then treats those that are forced to sacrifice. I'm not sure I like that framing, saying like, oh, somebody has to get hurt, someone has to sacrifice. But maybe there's a realism to that. So she talks about the history more in a general sense. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, she spends a bit more time in this article, which I dislike for the purpose of the show, but more about how this myth came to be and uh, why it exists or, like, you know, what, what books, that let's see, the policy briefs in the 70s about. So there's a publication by Edward Weiner, Urban Transport Planning in the United States, an historical overview, published in 97 or its fifth edition was. It reads like a heavily annotated timeline and focuses on landmark studies and descriptions of the regulations. The first thing one notices is the silence on the impacts of urban expressway construction on black communities. Indeed, it contains very little social analysis at all. You know, it's engineering. What do, what do people have to do with it? Even the word minority does not appear until Wiener summarizes the executive order issued by Clinton on environmental justice. Wiener, however, went beyond convenient silence he actively constructed an alternative history that advanced the myth. He made his case for the dance of the intended, only traveled between, not within cities, and unattended all the negative consequences through presenting summaries of what would have been, in his time, dusty reports locked up in specialty libraries. The summaries prepare the ground for arguments such as this one in the urban crisis in the 70s. <clears throat> These older communities and central cities were severely distressed economically and limited in their ability to address these problems themselves. It was recognized that the federal government had contributed to these problems with programs that had unintended consequences. Now this often leaves many, many people off the hook by saying, well, yeah, I didn't intend to hurt those people. I didn't intend black lives to get shot by police. I didn't intend uh, people to starve. I don't, hey, the system doesn't intend food deserts to exist. They just happen. We didn't intend to bulldoze all these black neighborhoods, specifically. It was just a coincidence. Quinkadink. Wiener's deployment of such words intended and unintended will not be subtle. Wiener's key studies and more are now online for all to see. Five reports, two published in 56. 1956, and three shortly after, show that in no sense were the interstate system intended only for inner-city travel. Moreover, the assertion that the consequences of the interstates and urban areas were unintended, at least for what they are called the total transportation needs of the metropolis and the displacement of minority communities, is untenable. Top leaders anticipated these impacts, and yet the efforts they made to address them fell short. Because after all, the anticipated impact was that everyone now needed to buy a car. The maybe unintended consequence that wasn't really thought about very much was that everyone cannot afford to buy a car. But there's always this patchwork that, well, in the free market, people find a way. You know, there's uh, businesses or social clubs, you know, make incentives, or there's charity to make sure that, you know, uh, Oprah, for example, to make sure everyone gets a car. <laughs> Oprah, the Oprahs of the world, will fill the gaps in car ownership. See, and that's kind of like the turnaround on that kind of charity. 
Now, the Oprah meme is, is quite old, but now imagine if she put her billions into lobbying or even privately building uh, or operating bus services for working mothers. That would be way more efficient use of that money, and it would serve way more people than the one crowd that she gave cars out to. And it was pointed out at the time, of course, that, hey, you can pay for the car, but what about the maintenance and the fuel that comes with it? These are added expenses that they may not be able to hold, or they could hold those, but not the car payments. It's still more bills. So let's see. There was a board on highway research that was found in the 20s. Okay, now for the history itself. In his history, Wiener sets up the myth by badly stating it in a summary of interregional highways. The landmark 44 report to Congress that lays out the plan for what became the interstate system. The importance of the system within these cities was recognized, but it was not intended that these highways serve urban commuter travel demands in the major cities. Unquote. He backs up his assertion. This is something he's asserting, by the way, about the policy, not describing what the policy, well, what it was in, in the abstract at the time, I guess. He backs up his assertion with a carefully edited quote from the report that leaves the reader no clue that the paragraphs preceding the quote actually present the case for the interregional highways to urban areas to become part of federal support for urban transportation. Indeed, at least one-third of the content in interregional highways, this is Wiener's book, or reports, is about urban areas. The report includes a chapter on locating the interregional routes in urban areas, which includes a section called Penetration of City. Ooh, very male-coded there. This section argues that much, if not most, of the traffic on urban segments of what will become the interstate highways will be local traffic. Another chapter discusses parking. As the Eisenhower administration, so just you know, think of parking craters and the hollowing out of our urban cores. It was all thought about and done anyway because the car industry wanted it. As the Eisenhower administration continued to press for accelerating construction of the interstate system, BPR completed the Yellow Book collection of maps known as General Location of National, okay, blah, blah, blah. In addition, by the mid-50s, highway officials have become alarmed by what they called the exploding metropolis. Continued rural-to-urban migration combined with the baby boom meant that between 1950 and 55, nearly all population growth concentrated in metropolitan areas. Kind of seen that coming. Within the metropolitan areas, however, decentralization reigned. Suburban areas attracted not just the new housing, but the growth and jobs and shopping as well. Now, of course, these suburbs had rail traffic or, you know, bus or trams. That's how Albany's grown. Car ownership reached, let's see. But the growth and jobs and shopping as well, car ownership reached new heights while mass transit use fell about a quarter in the largest cities. Not all the way, but a quarter of it. Although this is not the place to rewrite the history of the Federal Aid Highway Act of 56, three observations are crucial to understanding law's consequences. So this is the transition from plan to national project. First, the highway industry wasn't expect a law funding the entire network to fall into place. They kind of expected maybe this to kind of be rolled out over decades and not a decade. 
So maybe it would be slower and there'd be more like a reaction and people would have more time to react to how sudden the transformation would be. Or they weren't able to. Or it took a, it wasn't until the 60s that people were like, hey, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. Um, highway officials spoke openly to highway leaders about the suddenness of the 56 law. Despite acknowledging that many were unprepared, Johnson maintained that state and local officials still must do the best they can to coordinate planning. But it was not just urban highways. The organization also led a mad dash to update the state's highway laws, including for eminent domain. In addition, the organization that's AASHO, that's American Association of State Highway Officials, this is like the professionals, they had long, they were preparing to launch a long-desired and massive multi-year study on asphalt and concrete pavements. But those road test results wouldn't be ready until 62. You know, what, what should the paving actually be? Okay. So then the 56 law turned into what had been a federal funding program into a de facto project. In addition to charging state highway departments with completing the system as designated, the law also established a budget and a deadline. The difference is not trivial. When something is a program, it is still in the realm of politics. Transforming the interstate system into a project put the highway engineers' professional reputations, both as individuals and collectively, at stake. Right? When you take it out of the realm of politics, it means we're not discussing or debating or testing ideas out. You're just going to do it. And damn the consequences. Third and related, the federal government would now pick up to 90% instead of half of the cost. This change distorted the long-standing federal-state cooperative relationship. After you know, so centralization, big government, right? Uh, 56, the interstate system was truly a national project. However, despite the federal largesse, the state highway department still bought and owned the land. Moreover, federal highway funds could not be used for the cost of reallocating people or businesses. Not until the 60s could federal highway funds be used for relocating the displaced. That was probably because of pressure from the populace. Okay, so here, here's some good detail here. The National Committee on Urban Transportation published Better Transportation for Your City. The federal government, through VPR, was officially represented on the committee whose other members came from American and Canadian professional orgs and municipal governments, of course. So the guide advocates, uh, this is what they wrote, a comprehensive and continuing process for urban transportation planning uh -huh, and leads decision makers through the steps of a rational planning board on the essential facts. It frames the problem of congestion and safety as equals. Although the emphasis is on private vehicles, mass transit and walking are left out, despite being only about 100 pages. The guide ranges widely from regional origin destination surveys to specific recommendations such as uh, that there should be sidewalks on both sides of the street. Oh, how nice of them. Sidewalks on both sides of the uh, six-lane interchange. <laughs> the guide is included in Wiener's history, which correctly notes federal involvement. However, Wiener chose to leave out it had endorsed the guide and its accompanying technical manuals. So one glaring moral weakness of both interregional highways and the guide 
is that both barely acknowledge that these urban expressways would require massive acts of eminent domain. If noted at all, they are mostly concerned with how to reduce the cost of land acquisition. Interregional Highways imagines itself in battle with a nefarious enemy, the land speculator. The guide gives two sentences to the recognition that families and businesses will be displaced, although one of those sentences is a prescient warning. Quote, Failure to plan for relocation in advance may result in unfavorable public relations and delay the program. So there's more about the relationship between this project and municipalities and basically how they were pressured to just kind of rush things through and us. Oh, yeah, it was intended that uh, everyone be compensated. Uh, but of course, that didn't actually happen or it happened very little. Talks about something called the Sagmore Conference. Here's where we get into the um, racial justice relocation segregation. Although Wiener's history does not include the final report, a framework for urban studies uh, in 1959, it gives additional context to the time period Wiener waved away as about region-wide planning. To sum this up, I think I've gone on long enough. So the USDOT created an official work of history that actively propagated both the silence and the myth about constructing the interstate system in urban areas. The federal government was and always will be a leader, both in developing the system and how its history is remembered. The federal government also needs to be a leader in helping the transportation industry understand the impacts of its history. Now, of course, as a lefty, I would just say we should just freaking nationalize everything. But one could say this was all a problem of nationalizing such a big project. But it's, it's really just a paradox, though, or got to take it as it is, that such a thing as interstate transport must be on the federal level. It has to be a national project. But it has to be planned over time by communities. And that's what didn't happen and what continues not to happen. As I could tie everything I've just read into how the quote-unquote Biden infrastructure bill is being rolled out. I saw a headline that it, the concrete industry has concerns that it will be able to keep up with like the amount that needs to happen. And that kind of speaks to like, well, why is our infrastructure in such a sorry, sorry state? Could it be that private industry just actually isn't supplying what's needed to keep it maintained? And that to actually maintain it properly, when yet once it's actually like the funding for it is lined up, the industry says, actually, it would take us a lot longer to make the concrete. Now, of course, concrete, very high embodied energy. We should really be moving to other types of materials and other things. Rail is so much more efficient than putting down roadbed. And with individual vehicles and trucks, you just have to keep putting down that roadbed again and again and again. With rails, you just, if, they, if they're if uh, they damaged, you just hammer them back in the shape. That was uh, something said about monorails. Like, why don't you see more monorails? Well, the, the big monorail is this big, complex, technical piece of thing. And if there's something wrong with, like, say, an interchange, a monorail interchange, or with a switch or something, it's, it takes days to fix. If there's a problem with uh, railway gauges, 
you can just hammer them back in place and fix them in an hour or less. Basically, the uh, the time it takes, the, the time that an Amtrak cha- train is delayed, uh, instead of just canceling the train itself, I just delay it an hour. So this will hopefully take the rest of the hour. We'll see. It's from Next City, and it is also kind of a study. Um, as And like most kind of pop reporting, you can find studies to support whatever kind of position you have. But uh, so what matters is looking at meta studies or like how many research is done that stacks up in favor of position. You know, what has more, what conclusion has more su- studies that support it. And well, that's a lot of work to compile all of that. Otherwise, it just, it's a matter of, feels like it's a matter of just going to your little, um, what is it called, thought bubble and reading the studies that you back up what you want to believe knowledge. Anyway, the title of this one is, so this is uh, regarding um, techno fixes and kind of like, can we make transportation better by automating it or making electric cars or ride hailing apps, you know, and stuff like that. Like, isn't that uh, lowering the amount of people that need to buy cars if you can just use Uber all the time? And doesn't that help the environment? No. Ride hailing makes road congestion worse, study finds again. Written, filed by Sandy Smith, end of April this year. Welcome to the Mobile City, our weekly roundup of noteworthy transportation developments. Okay, this is from the publication. Okay, into it. The debate over the effect of ride hailing services on city, city transportation networks has been going on for as long, about as long as Uber and Lyft have been offering their network transportation services to the eager public. On the one side, proponents say that they reduce the number of cars on the road, thus lessening congestion, and that they can serve as last-mile feeders to public transit. On the other, critics note that all of those operators driving around waiting for riders to materialize take up road space themselves, thus making congestion worse. A new study comes down on the critic's side. This also all applies to automated driving. Sure, maybe it will save lives, says the companies that never seem to deliver on their promises. Not to mention that as for-profit businesses, you kind of need to take whatever they say with a really big heaping of skepticism. It is in their interest to lie. It is not in their interest to say, we need more evidence before we keep doing what we're doing. That's the same issue that led to the disasters of creating the interstate highway system. It's a very similar problem, uh, issue. So another new study could influence the debate over the Biden administration's $2 trillion infrastructure spending proposal. I disagree because the way our Congress functions ideologically means that there will not be any actual new policy that comes from the infrastructure bill uh, as it is. It doesn't actually seek to lower greenhouse gas emissions or anything like that or make cleaner transit. It's just to keep what we have going. Status quo, baby. Critics of the proposal say the total amount is too much. And some members of Congress say that the current ratio of road to transit spending is too heavily tilted towards roads. I would have to agree with them. I'm on 
are on my side. Anyway, and while everyone argues over big tax hikes or big spending cuts, University of Georgia research suggests that we could do a few million little things over the next few years that would produce some $20 billion in savings on infrastructure maintenance every year. And that amount, $20 billion, you may recall, is what it would cost to give every sizable city in America a transit service people would actually use. Referencing their uh, article from April 21st. So basically, instead of spending trillions, just spend a billion on each major city for them to build out public transit. That's all it would take. Okay, finally, chances are that some of the invited guests who attended Sunday's 93rd Academy Awards ceremony took Uber and Lyft to get to the event. That's right. I forgot this article basically centers uh, things on the this year's Academy Awards. Don't ask me why. Uh, maybe they're just in L.A. But what does the study have to do with it? So uh, because of COVID concerns, uh, the ceremony was was moved to a new venue, the Los Angeles Union Station, whose main waiting room was converted into a socially distanced banquet hall of sorts for the Oscars. Even though Angelinos are used to the entertainment industry disrupting their everyday routines, the way the Academy of Motion Pictures and Arts and Sciences went about cordoning off Union Station, this is the train station, by the way, drew negative reviews from some Angelinos on behalf of many writers who had to use the station both ahead of and during the awards program. So on to the research here about urban congestion. And ride-hailing makes it worse. So a new study confirms what many other studies have previously said, that ride-hailing cars make traffic congestion worse. A team of researchers at the Future Urban Mobility Interdisciplinary Research Group, mouthful, this is a research alliance between Singapore and MIT, recently published a paper in the journal Nature Sustainability titled Impacts of Transportation Network Companies on Urban Mobility. Now, what are those impacts? According to the MIT press release, <coughs> researchers created a model based on 44 cities in the U.S. where Uber and Lyft operate. They found that ride-hailing vehicles produce a nearly 1% rise in the amount of congestion and a about 5% increase in its duration. On top of this, the researchers also found that the use of ride-hailing services leads to a 10% fall-off in public transit ridership and a mere 1% drop in private vehicle ownership. Not really the results touted about by the companies. It's quite pitiful, really. The study was the first to incorporate data from both of the principal TNCs, transport network companies, most previous studies of the subject focused on Uber alone, which controls about 70% of the market. It's quite a monopoly there. Including the 30% of ride-hail trips provided by Lyft in the data set makes this study more comprehensive as it takes into account about, uh, well, all of, uh, almost all, 98% of ride-hailing trips in the country. <clears throat> more exhaustive. Not leaving anything out. That's good. The findings suggest that ride-hailing may not be the urban transportation magic bullet its proponents have presented it as. Of course they would present it as a magic bullet. Every company wants to sell themselves as being the best thing that you need to use slash have. Throw it out. Throw it all out. Okay. 
McCautious, MIT Urban Mobility Lab postdoctorate researcher, and the study co-author, Choi Kwan, we are still in the early stages of TNCs, and we will likely see many changes in how these ride-sharing businesses operate, or they could just go bust completely. It's not like they ever actually made money, and they're kind of waiting slash hoping for automation to save them. I'm not seeing that happening. Our research shows that over time, they've intensified urban transport challenges, mainly through extended duration and slightly through the increased intensity. With this information, policies can then be introduced that could lead to positive changes. Maybe. Quite quite, uh, quite uh, assuming a lot there about how government currently works in America. Like it is in a plutocracy. Readers of a certain age may recall a famous series of television commercials for motor oil filters in the 80s. The ads features a mechanic who explained he just had to replace an engine because the car's owner didn't change the filter. At the end, he held up the filter and said, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Yeah, certain readers. <laughs> not me. I was born in 88, so. According to academic research reported on in Arconnect, that auto mechanics advice applies to state transportation departments too. By replacing a minor bridge component like a damaged expansion joint on an ongoing basis, they can extend the life of the bridge, save huge sums later on. How much the departments would have to pay now? About $10 billion over three years' time? How much would they save as a result? $20 billion a year on an ongoing basis by 2024? And of course, the annual expenditure for the regular preventive maintenance would be lower going forward well, going on. So in addition, regularly replacing expansion joints would add 25 years to average lifespan of a highway bridge, taking it from 75 to 100 years. Preventive maintenance of this type might also prevent catastrophic failures, like the collapse of that 40-year-old bridge over the Mississippi and Minneapolis that happened in 07. The researchers analyzed data in the Federal Highway Administration National Bridge Inventory for Bridges in Alabama, Florida, and Georgia for their study. They noted that theirs was the first study to consider bridges not as static objects, but as dynamic systems whose performance changes based on condition. Who do? Prior to our work, we haven't seen a mathematical model that considers the interaction between bridge elements. Really? So basically, like, they're doing their bridge calculations like I did in high school or college, which, you know, is kept at this basic level so that artists like me can uh, do it. We need a more realistic way to access bridge conditions prioritize preventive maintenance, particularly in such a challenging budget environment. Well, true, true. You don't have to use more to get more if you take a more holistic approach. The hippies have something right there. It must have seemed like a good idea at the time. Let's see. Okay, now back to the LA Union Station and the 93rd Oscars. Must have seemed like a good idea at the time. Move the main award ceremony for the uh, Oscars out of the Dolby Theater, theater, where the sight of a half-empty auditorium might deliver the wrong message to millions who tune into the Oscars. But the choice of venue for the relocated event turned out to be a box office bomb for the people who actually use the venue every day, says the Hollywood Reporter. Why didn't they just use some other big ballroom? I mean, or the convention center, even. The venue in question, LA Union Station, hub of LA region commuter rail network, 
and major transfer point, point between Metrolink commuter, rail, and Metro B and D, and so on and so on. The Oscar ceremony took over the west half of the station as well as its ticket concourse and grand waiting room. Takeover led to the reallocation of bus stops, pickups, and so on. It goes on about that. So the Oscars prioritized, were, were prioritized, and transit riders got the short end of the stick. The images of people walking in that incredibly unpleasant and long tunnel and the guy in the wheelchair having to detour for, detour for a mile is all I needed to see to understand where the city's priorities were on this. An unidentified L.A. Metro spokesperson quoted in the story said the agency received no complaints about station access over the weekend and that it provided both a shuttle bus and ADA-compliant shuttles to ferry passengers from the east side of the station to the west side access. But Meredith also noted that when the Oscars take place at their usual location, a heavily used subway station in Hollywood is also shut down for the event. These are both major transportation hubs, and it shouldn't be happening. So this reporting kind of went, uh, jumped around between a few things, but uh, I think this is could could be a case of like what I do with my show, right? Rather than just talk about one thing, I'm like, okay, I want to talk about this study about ride sharing apps being not helpful. I mean, they're convenient, I guess, they're the rise rise in convenience, not actually solving urban transport issues, the injustice towards public transit riders, actual people, right? And that's the thing about public transit. It actually serves so many more people as it works that any, say, Elon Musk type of proposal to for you know his tubes would only serve as a minor, a minor fraction of the people. And you could say that, okay, yeah, yeah everyone's driving, all those millions of people, it's truly a minor a majority, but it it transports people for so much more money and resources than trains and buses. And if there's a last mile problem, you solve that with smaller, more buses, like little vans and uh, and other things. I can't tell you, like you know, the old. Uh, are relying on star buses or arranged rides with various companies, um, all kinds of different kinds of subsidi- uh, subsidizing happening. It's whole industries. I I wonder, like comparing the the amount of costs that 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 has and the inconvenience to the infirm, the people who can't drive or can't afford a car anymore, or something like that. Sort of reminds me. Well, that's the thing, you know, uh, we're, uh, because of hedge funds, home ownership is being basically taken away from every future generation as, uh, as it's usually assumed that some housing crash and, you know, will lower prices and then people like me will be able to actually afford to get into the housing market or to buy my starter home at age 35. But because hedge funds are buying up all the property, the prices aren't going down. They're not going to crash like they normally do and kind of reset the market, so to speak, and allow people to actually get in, which has kind of been the case uh, post-09. So I've got a lot more to cover. I can definitely go through it the rest of the 
hour, but I want to rest my voice. Maybe a little out of practice. It's just hot in here. Hello everyone, this video is a response to CGP Grey's painful take on traffic. Now I don't have an issue with CGP Grey or his content in general, but I do believe that his video entitled The Simple Solution to Traffic is wildly misinformed and propagates some very harmful solutions both to people and to our built environment. I've put a link to his video in the description so you can check it out yourself and make sure that I don't misrepresent any of his ideas. So let's get to it, shall we? In the video, CGP Grey begins by laying out the main problem with traffic in his opinion, coordination. Stuck at an intersection, you always watch unfold the fundamental problem of traffic. On green, the first car accelerates, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next, and then you, only to catch the red. Had the cars accelerated simultaneously, you would have made it through. Coordination, not cars, is the problem, because we are monkey drivers with slow reaction times and short attention spans. He posits that traffic could be vastly improved if all cars could accelerate and decelerate at the same time as if they were connected to each other. Oh man, so far this sounds dangerous like a train. CGP Grey then proposes the first practical solution. Just don't tailgate, stay in the middle. That should fix the problem, right? Of course not. And CGP Grey acknowledges this, so props to him. That's the simple solution to traffic, getting humans to change their behavior, perhaps by sharing this video to show how and why traffic happens, why tailgaters are trouble, and how we can work together to make the roads better for all. The end. Except, yeah, wishing upon a star that people are better than they are is a terrible solution every time. CGP Grey then posits that we need a structurally systematized solution. Wow, you mean public transportation? Which is exactly what self-driving cars are. Oh, and this right here is the main point I'll be arguing against, that self-driving cars are a solution, or even the solution, to our traffic problems. So within the framework of self-driving cars, CGP Grey proposes that once all cars become self-driving, we can finally get rid of intersections, and so traffic will flow evenly and nobody will have to sit in a traffic jam. Now that being said, my question to you CGP Grey is How in the name of Christ will a pedestrian cross this? And this right here is my central issue with this video, really. It looks and sounds like having been made by someone who, if they want to go running, take their SUV from their copy-paste suburban home to the strip mall 10 kilometers away and then take the escalator up the gym stairs so that they can run on a treadmill for half an hour. It's a terminally car-brained mindset, as if CGP Grey cannot imagine his life without motorization. This becomes increasingly evident when he goes on to say, A solid lane of self-driving cars vastly increases throughput. Neat! So if until now 20,000 cars passed under your window every day, it's now going to be 60,000. Yay? CGP then suggests that we should ban humans from the road. And I'm assuming that this video is talking about urban areas where clogged intersections are a real problem and interchanges aren't an option. And by banning humans from the road, CGP Grey of course means ban humans from driving. But ironically, this would actually ban humans from the roads physically, in the sense that we wouldn't even be allowed to cross it at grade anymore. Off the road, peasant. You're messing up our perfect techno-future car flow. How dare you disrupt traffic with your existence in this settlement where people live? 
If this dystopian nightmare I mean traffic solution would become a reality, we would need to invest in a lot of costly underground and overground passages. You know, the things every city is desperately trying to get rid of because they're horrible, they're awkward to climb and not accessible for low mobility groups, unless you're willing to shell out tons of money for elevators. And it's not just a problem for wheelchair-bound and older people. Imagine spraining your ankle at work or something and then having to climb 10 flights of stairs just to get to the grocery store. Turning urban areas into obstacle courses for pedestrians only benefits drivers and make everyone else miserable. It's peak 1960s city planning and CGP Grey's video is from 2016, which is impressive. Separating cars from people inside cities for a better traffic flow leads to all kinds of negative outcomes. And I know because this has been tried before. This is a picture of the area in front of Prague main station from back in the day. As you can see, it's this archaic, low capacity, very low efficiency, very non-epic design. But thankfully, some future visionaries got their hands on it and turned it into a high-capacity, very high-efficiency, fast, great separate transit solution. And it also became one of the worst places inside the entire city. Beneath this 8-lane urban freeway, there is a network of underpasses that are awkward to get to, but at night they offer a free mugging experience if you're into that sort of thing. But hey, in the name of fixing traffic, who wouldn't want to walk down a dark, concrete hallway reeking of feces with heavy traffic rumbling above? Underpasses and overpasses are meant to cement the dominance of cars in our living spaces and nothing else. The only group they benefit inside urban areas is drivers. Some people say they are actually good for pedestrians though because they are safer, but they are only quote-unquote safe because the roads are dangerous, and that's because of individual motor traffic aka cars and nothing else. You know, cars are literally the worst kind of transportation you can have, even electric cars, and that's because outside of pollution, the biggest problem is geometry. One car will fit inside a city, one million won't. Not unless you bulldoze entire neighborhoods to make way for urban freeways and tear down half the inner city to build parking lots. No matter how well you coordinate your cars, they will still back up if they don't fit inside the city. Rolling around in two tons of metal and plastic per 1.5 or so people is simply not sustainable, period. This is where the story begins and ends. There is no getting around this issue. It's either a car-friendly city or a livable city. You can only pick one. Also, one thing that CGB Grey ignores completely is just how vulnerable a network of self-driving cars is to sabotage. Imagine if on a road like this, someone hacked into the control system of just three or four cars and then sent out a command to make a sharp turn into the oncoming lane. The result would be a massive pileup and a significant death toll. And even if most other cars could stop in time, the road would still be blocked for hours. Do this at some key intersections at the same time at rush hour and you'll paralyze an entire city. Do this in multiple cities and logistics routes at the same time and you'll paralyze an entire economy. And if you think this is some kind of science fiction speculation, you would be wrong. This is already happening. Just a few weeks before making this video, there was a hacker attack on the colonial pipeline in the US causing massive fuel shortages and general panic. But what if we develop some very highly advanced countermeasures? What if we create an encryption so good that it would take a hundred years to crack using the IBM mainframe? That encryption will work until the first quantum computer comes along able to break it in a few minutes. Imagine a geopolitical rival like China secretly developing a high-performance quantum computer and then letting it loose on the West. Imagine massive, deadly pileups, not just in a few places, but in every intersection of every city of every developed country on Earth. Or, if you don't want to go that large scale, imagine taking over just a few cars and ramming them into the president's motorcade in an assassination attempt. Or taking over a 40-ton tanker truck and running it into some government building or a central hospital or into a pillar of some strategically important bridge or something. We don't yet realize the enormous risks that self-driving cars will pose. They'll be just another IT system, and as such, hackable. 
we are reaching a point where we need to reconsider whether pure tech solutions are a good idea, like how this man found out during a Google service outage. He writes, I'm sitting here in the dark in my toddler's room because the light is controlled by Google Home. Rethinking a lot right now. Self-driving cars are not the solution to traffic. They can be very useful in many cases, but they are not some silver bullet. So what's the actual solution to traffic? Previously on this video. So what's the actual solution to traffic? Plain and simple. Instead of the mindless promotion of self-driving cars, we should start planning cities in a way that you won't actually need a car for your day-to-day -day existence. I've lived in European cities for my whole life and I've never needed a car to get around. Only for rare occasions maybe, like uh, hauling furniture or something. In the meantime, we should continue taking back our cities from cars, street by street, square meter by square meter. We should focus on building walkable neighborhoods, get rid of giant strip malls at the edges of cities that encourage car use, demolish urban freeways, and rearrange the suburbs to increase their density and walkability. Measures like this will limit urban sprawl, making public transit much more viable and efficient. It'll be a virtuous circle that will make all our lives better. And if you happen to belong to the top 1%, meaning these measures would make your life somewhat less comfortable, tough shit. This is the simple solution to fix traffic. Not trying to make a broken system a bit more efficient through sheer tech, but getting rid of it in favor of something better. Because even if every single car becomes self-driving and we somehow make it 100% sabotage-proof and every single road starts operating in this hyper-efficient mode, all that would have the same effect as adding more lanes, i.e. increasing capacity. It's called induced demand, CGP. And I think you should look into it before making a video about how to fix traffic. Because no one has ever fixed traffic by adding more capacity. And self-driving cars will not be an exception. The market will self-regulate But elite business schemes Would still just be dreams Without the arms of the state If you wanna know what they mean When they say We're gonna open up your markets For our free trade Just ask the ghosts of all those who've been for refusing to bow down before the dollar bill The invisible hand of the market Is only one of two Wielded by the corporate elite And dressed in red, white, and blue In one fist an M16 the one a thousand dollar bill If the right fist doesn't get you Then the other one surely will Cargill, Monsanto Homework or Union Carbide They go by so many names But for the 
is always the same McDonald's requires McDonald Douglas United Fruit needed U.S. Marines The freedom of their market Supported by fascist regimes The invisible hand of the market Is only one of two Wielded by the corporate elite And dressed in red, white, and blue In one fist an M16 rifle In the other one a thousand dollar bill If the right fist doesn't get you Then the other Down 
Okay, leaving you with that uh, in your minds. Welcome back to the Three Left Show. This is the second hour with uh, me, your host, Dan Platt, talking transit issues uh, or transit-related issues, I suppose. Uh, the first hour, I covered uh, m- mostly negative stuff, as I sometimes do, uh, mostly explanation of how the interstate highway system got so daft um, and a kind of corollary to... The system's still picking on transit and uh, urban transit and uh, not really the change in policy, not really actually happening that is still needed. Despite, you know, oh, a new new infrastructure bill. Is it really changing anything? Uh, maybe. The uh, kind of a, it was the Green Party statement on the infrastructure bill. So maybe this would actually be the time. But I'm mostly concerned how it is not addressing climate change at all. Duh. Maybe it has to be said. Anyway, I want to cover two things that have to do with transportation and crime. Particularly, um, first, let me restate the kind of anarchist position on crime, that it's all a matter of perspective. Things are criminalized and thus making people criminals rather than actually solving social issues or whatever the actual harm is that's caused by things that are like defined as crime, I suppose. Here's a great example of this from governing I don't know. I, I put this in my bank of sort like uh, info, news and info sources. Governing Magazine, which is kind of just a magazine for people in government. It comes at things in a very establishment or status quo type of framing. Uh, sometimes it's like it feels like this is it comes at things from like decades old paradigms. So here's an example. What the hell am I talking about here? Well, it's talking about reducing crime on transit systems. And it's basically taking this tack of like broken windows policing. The stuff that has led to the extrajudicial killing of black people uh, for committing crimes, you know, street crimes or whatever. Or no crime at all, but suspecting, uh, being suspected and being out, out and dangerous. So, um... Here's a, it's from uh, this, this summer, recent. Okay, so what's the best way to reduce crime on transit systems? It's a, it's a big open, sounds like a very good question to ask. But on closer examination, it's actually pretty, like, really vague question. Reducing crime on transit systems. Like, what crime are we talking about here? Well, it turns out they're not talking about, like, rape or harassment or violence. Because that's pretty much gone. Though sexual harassment and other things seem seem to still occur that's why like you know some women will say i'm i'm never going to use public transportation because the first time i used it someone cat called something something disgusting of course not saying like oh they need to buck up and take it but like okay let's talk about how we fix this anyway so ridership on trains and buses has plunged yet crime is on the rise Transit advocates say now is the time to change how we handle fare evaders and illegal behavior. But will the riding population feel safer? Well, because here's the thing. The crime that's occurring on trains, according to this article, has nothing to do with public safety. It's theft and what are illegal behavior? Well, let's let's discuss. And that may may, uh, kind of get into like what why this defund the police angle that uh you uh, crazy leftists have because it's like the kind of like policing that's occurring that's just like okay so new york city's mayoral rights featured little discussion of transit 
or transportation, except when the subject intersected with crime and safety. It seemed to be on everybody's mind at the time. Maybe it's the pandemic, maybe it's uh, BLM, or not, not so much BLM, the uprisings, whatever. The more we see the, that omnipresence of police officers, we're going to decrease the anxiety, increase the trust. Then you, you can reevaluate where you are, said Eric Adams, the presumed victor, a month before the election. A former transit, this is for mayor of New York, a former transit police officer himself, he suggested inundated the system with hundreds of additional officers. Now, in some kinds of crime, sometimes like having police at the exits and entrances of subway stations or public transit hubs is sort of lowers anxiety, at least because you know that emergency personnel are close by. I would probably feel just as less anxious if it was like a doctor or some kind of like on-staff medic. Just any kind of staff, really. Doesn't have to be police. And of course, I'm white. And for others, seeing cops everywhere actually makes you can make you feel pretty unsafe. So many big city public transit systems saw increased fear of crime and disorder during the pandemic. As ridership... Now, of course, who are we talking about here? Just, but, okay, there were general anxieties about various things. Now, of course, I'm looking at things from a bigger perspective. Like, what other things make, might make people feel more anxious? Is it really just, like, BLM riots? Maybe the... Uh, the Trumpers storming the Capitol, you know, charging in. Could it be climate crisis? Could it be the uh, decline of our entire society? <laughs> There's a lot of things. Or, or it's the economic malaise, the, the, the hardship, the fact that our system basically said you're kind of expendable if you're a working class. The gears must turn. But anyway, the... Fear of crime seemed to also come out uh, in the polling, perhaps. So you can already see the pattern here that I'm kind of taking issue with a lot of their kind of assumptions or prepositions about the problem is crime on subways. I'm skeptical. So these are very real concerns also intersected. But are they real? What kind of crime has increased? Is, has murder gone up? I don't know. I don't think it has. If it has, it's gone up maybe a few percent because, well, economic crisis makes people desperate. Okay. So these real concerns, let's take them at their word here. Okay. So, yeah, I know this is the kind of problem I get in when I'm reading something I actually don't like or disagree with. Maybe I could have found other things about crime on public transportation. How would an anarchist handle it? <laughs> or how does a socialist talk about these things? I mean, we're just desperate just to get more public transit, right? Right? whether less there's there's crime there or not, or what you consider crime to be on. There's increasing concern. Okay, but but they are, you know, they're, they're, they're somewhat, obviously they're conscious, right? Conscious here. So despite these very real concerns uh, intersecting with increasing concern about the over-reliance on police in many aspects of American life, especially in the wake of George Floyd's murder not to mention all the other black murders. Now, BLM has been around for a good four or five years now. Six years, actually. Started during Obama. Kind of, like, interesting to remind myself of that and others. That, like, when I, like, oh, yeah, these, like, I was talking about in the um, leftist infighting, I mentioned, like, BLM groups. Like, I had to kind of reflect and 
I was talking about BLM groups before Trump was president. So instead, progressive advocates are promoting the idea of shifting resources to other arms of the state while refocusing police resources on more violent crime. Other groups have famously gone further to promote it and promoted defunding or abolishing the police. More on that, see other episodes I put out. In light of year, last year's protests, many agencies have begun to rethink their relationship with policing on the system, says Chris Van Eiken, Senior Program Associate at Transit Center, an advocacy group. But they tried to balance the need to maintain a secure environment, because if you're not keeping riders safe, they're not going to come back, especially after COVID. There's a fear that riders are going to be hesitant, so you need the system to be safe. Now, people are like, feeling unsafe on a bus, why would they be even more concerned after COVID? Like, they're afraid of people not wearing masks, not following those rules? Because as far as the buses are concerned, they're not let on without a mask. And there's like now a sign saying like federal law, no mask, no ride. Ben Eichen and his colleagues at the Transit Center have compiled a report called Safety for All which argues that police are necessary to keep violent crime in check, but that other strategies are required as well. In particular, they argue that both undocumented immigrants and black Americans disproportionately suffer when armed officers are tasked with enforcing quality of life laws about eating on transit, talking, taking up multiple seats, or skipping the fare. But then you have to ask, what kind of violent crime is happening in public transit that has to be prevented? So I have to kind of do a little snark and go like, look at these bootlickers. Oh, you need police to keep violent crime in check. It's not like you could lower poverty or et cetera, et cetera. The report states that there are alternative ways to enhance safety on mass transit while minimizing the risk of es escalatory interactions between armed law enforcement. Now, maybe if they were unarmed law enforcement, since the crimes we're talking about don't really require a shootout or having a shootout would be really bad. Then I can point to the Bay Area Rapid Transit, called the BART, where police violence entered the spotlight after the killing of Oscar Grant in 2009 on an elevated train platform. And it was a killing because he was basically on the ground, Tom being held down and uh, shot in head, if I think, if I'm recalling the instance correctly. And again, it was another instance where the cop thought they were using a taser. Why would you use a taser on a man who was already on the ground? Uh, don't ask me. The system has since increased levels of non-police oversight, hiring elevator attendants to maintain sanitation and safety in those spaces. An ambassador program was created as the first response unit without firearms. There, there I go. Uh, although they do carry pepper spray and police radios, as well as Narcan to prevent overdoses which they should. These officers are still employed by the BART police force, but they have responsibility for enforcing quality of life crimes like fare evasion, but also quality of life crimes like stopping people from overdosing and, and, uh, and so on. So it allows for less intensive policing. BART will also point out that they're, they're more resource effective, meaning that they have lower salaries. You can deploy more people to ensure that riders are paying the fare, while using your police officers more strategically. Now, I find it interesting that this uh, study or the BART uh, spokesperson keep putting this emphasis on fare evasion and the fact that this transit ain't free and people aren't paying for it. I think I have to maybe 
put in the clarification or the reminder of the facts that most transportation systems affairs are only 20, 10 to 20% of the budget. It's not really required. It could easily all be free. Considering how most of our road, roads are free. I mean, the exceptions, toll roads, certain highways, but so many others are not. So more on how police backup is still needed. For Nicole Giannis, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, passionate and progressive thought they are, say that sarcastically, unarmed civilians are not enough to combat the current surge in crime, although they can be part of the solution with close police supervision. She notes that in Paris or London, if you skip the fare, enforcement is left to civilian patrols to check tickets and can hand out fines that must be paid on the spot. But if you try to run away from the... I really... See, like, let me point out here. This article is not really... Like, they're quoting people saying there's a surge in crime, but they're not themselves pointing out any stats about crime. They're not talking about what is the amount of crime. They're just kind of calling people up and taking them at their word. Great journalism. I love it. Wow. And again, talking about if you try to run away from the person checking the ticket in Paris... The gendarmes are not so far away, and they will chase you down. It was releasing a report on crime in the New York transit system on the same day as Transit Center's Safety for All. There's nothing wrong with trying experiments with civilian fare-beating enforcement. <laughs> oh, yeah, beating fares. Okay, fine. They're using the phrase beating. But you can't do that and not have a police backup. Then there's no incentive for people to not just run away. Or you could just make transit free. Or you could just make it free. Because when you compare, like, and I, I use this, like, kind of rhetoric. I've used this before and bears using again, I suppose. That sometimes the the cost in preventing a little amount of theft can be magnitudes more than what's lost in the theft. Like, uh, especially if it's bureaucratic theft. But even even if it's burglary, you know. How many billions are spent on law enforcement to protect people's property? How much is actually left uh, lost in property theft, like direct property theft? Because I'll point out that we, we left this. We have the graphs, okay? We have the graphs with the data to back it up. The most theft in, in America is wage theft. And there ain't no cop or there's no need for you know, armed enforcement to, have, uh, to force bosses to pay their workers what they're owed. And I can tell you, it's like four to one proportion wage theft to burglary theft. Okay. So more from... Janetta says that police should be aggressively intercepting fair beaters, a strategy that she attributes to part of the pre-COVID decline in violence on in the subway system. Now, this is all kind of hokey rhetoric about like, yeah, broken windows policing, totally effective. She distinguishes this from the much maligned stop and frisk campaigns, even though it's it's absolutely the same in my book. Because the police would be targeting people who have already committed a crime. <laughs> it was this it's the same strategy though. To stop and like cause when okay, when people were stopped and frisked, like, yeah, it was mostly random checking, but it was also wrapped up with they look suspicious or they have done some infraction that usually wouldn't actually be charged or ticketed. 
but we're going to stop them because they, well, let's say had a tail light out or ran or um, didn't stop correctly at a stop sign because I was checked. Sort of a car-based stop and frisk. Now, she points to a double, a recent double murder on the subway as an example of how fair enforcement could reduce violent crime, too. So that person almost certainly did not pay to get into the subway. If he was apprehended and his knife was taken off of him, you could have saved two lives, says Janaeus. We can arrest people after they have committed a violent crime, but the whole point of what we were doing for 30 years was to prevent violent crime. Uh, okay, it, it gets to the better rhetoric here. Okay, let me just finish it. For other transit advocates, fear that such enforcement will be disproportionately meted out against lower-income users, especially black riders, the overwhelming majority of whom would not be involved in more serious crime. Such interactions with law enforcement can often escalate, so minimizing such interactions with armed officers should be paramount. Transit study, The Transit Center study cites data from 2019 that shows 61% of use of force incidents affected black people, even though they only represented 10% of a system's ridership. Mm. In many transit systems, punishment for fare evasions is similar in severity to robbery or assault, not a traffic ticket or some other more equivalent crimes for drivers. And this is where it gets kind of seriously whacked out, that fare evasion is more like a civil infraction and should be like a ticket. But like, oh, no, you're stealing from the public. But this is where it gets in the racism territory where like, okay, it's a crime that more poor or slash black people are committing and they're going to be charged more for com for committing it because they're taking the subway more. At least in New York City, everyone takes it. Most everyone. Looking ahead, Janana says that the only way to reduce crime to the levels of the previous 30 years is to get more people on. And that's the thing. They're just talking about a rise that occurred in the last year. So it's not some long-term, like, big spike that's, we've got to do something different, like, right now. Anyway. But she, this is where, okay, she says something actually sensible. The only way to reduce crime to the levels of the previous 30 years is to get more people on the transit systems again. More than police presence or any other kind of state intervention, there is safety in crowds. As ridership spiked to modern highs in the 21st century, crime plummeted. So maybe it had nothing to do with the policing whatsoever. Maybe those like tie-ins with broken windows policing or saying, no, this is nothing like broken windows policing. Or stop and frisk, which is the same paradigm. But she feels the way to get riders back on transit is to make them feel safe. Oh, great. A paradox. Or a catch-22. As Transit Center study states, one of the most significant barriers is the perception that transit is unsafe. The difference is that Van Eiken and his colleagues think there are more diverse ways to make people feel protected on transit than increasing the numbers of armed officers. Whereas, Delanius and her colleagues at the Manhattan Institute think that's the best way back. So I'm definitely siding with Van Eiken here. Especially since when you're just talking about perceptions of being unsafe, not actually being unsafe. That's always like the craw of like, wait, 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 are we talking? It's a problem here that people are deluded about something and that the, the solving the delusion is spending a ton of money, throwing money at a problem, <laughs> throwing at the uh, like making them is like, okay, are you, are you not deluded anymore? We added more police. Will you feel safe now? 
At some point, yes, this could just fix itself, says Jelinas, once we get back up to 100% ridership. But that could be years away. Are we just going to let felony crime stay at such an elevated level until then? And of course, again, like, is she, t- is she talking about double murders here by knife? Or was she talking about fair evasion? Poe's talk about that story. I did, in fact, look up via the New York Times what the actual crime stats on New York City subways were. And lo and behold, the felony rate on New York City subways is one and a half per million people. So as my instincts were kind of gearing towards the conservative person from the Manhattan Institute is full of poppycock about rising crime and felonies and all the criminality. Gotta stop those $2 thefts from occurring, or $2.5 as the metro card is. Uh, And also just um, note that everything I've been talking about is based on my experience. I've living in New York City for six years. I read the subway quite a lot. Now for jumping right into that, still talking about New York City because it's a, you know it's the paradigm. It's also where everyone's writing about transit issues. Kind of bad though. You know, where where are the stories about rural transit? You know how to get good bus service or light rail in in rural counties. Uh, so this one is about, so um, this came on my radar mostly because in the early summer, as for the last few summers, there's been an explosion of the buying and riding of dirt bikes in urban areas. It's pretty annoying. The riding around, always very loud and in a very undisciplined way, you know, because they're riding them around for fun and pleasure, like in snowmobiles and four wheelers and stuff. But like, you know, you don't you don't take your snowmobile out uh, once it you know and snows in any urban area. It's kind of unsafe to do that. And similarly, it's kind of unsafe to do that. It's also really goddamn annoying. But here uh, is a case of like I don't hate people for doing something annoying to me, right? Especially when you know, yeah, these are illegal. You know, these bikes are not street legal, or rather, they're bike. They're smaller than motorcycles, so they don't need a license to. Um, to be there or rather they are riding it's like they're riding motorcycles unlicensed so they are committing a crime and so it's kind of this cat and mouse game of police actually trying to catch them which usually happens when they're if they ever stop the refuel in our area and then it's found that the ones in albany uh are coming from schenectady and but of course i'm in schenectady one time and then of course lots of dirt bike riders there so i'm like are they all just from one city? I mean, they can't all just be because some are, must be from around Albany, right? But anyway, my, my first instinct is like, they just need somewhere to ride. Similarly how like, oh, there's all these illegal skateboarders. Maybe we should just build them a skate park. And then they'd have a place to skate. And then, then they wouldn't have to grind on every conceivable surface around the city. They could do all that stuff in a skate park. Because, hey, if you ask them, they'll say, of course I'll skate somewhere else if there's a place for me to skate but there's nowhere to skate and the same goes with the bikes so here's an example of turning that around so new york city bikers push to build park to ride so they don't have to ride illegally on streets so a longtime urban biker has created events for riders to go on race tracks from upstate new york down to georgia and says the well-attended events defeat the argument the riders are just lawless criminals who want to rule the streets you know hoolums thugs 
dangerous to the neighborhood. Objects of hatred. Uh, so this is filed by Sarah Wallace. So this is uh, New York Four local local news here. But um, but it might as well be national because hey, what city you're in? Maybe there's a dirt bike problem there too. So anyway, a site some New Yorkers love to hate: renegade riders on ATVs and dirt bikes noisily careening through our neighborhoods. But some say there's a simple solution. Longtime New York City dirt bike riders and community advocates are launching a new push to build a park where people can pop their wheelies legally. Hell, let me get in character. Y'all don't like that we're riding bikes, I guess, recklessly. So I think the solution is that is to us having a park, said urban biker ASAP Ty. He and another longtime rider, Vendron Barrymore, first met with the I-Team in 2016 at an undisclosed street location where they showed off their extreme moves. Benmore, who has been arrested and had one bike confiscated, made it his mission to find legal places for bike life sports events. It was the argument that was saying, like, if they build the park, people wouldn't come because people want to show it off on the streets. So far, Benmore has had 13 events on tracks from upstate New York down to Georgia, drawing big crowds. Quoting him again, all our riders for that day said, we're going to go to the track and we're going to ride freely without the hassle. It's all about riding without the hassle, Benmore told NBC New York. So I proved to them that riders will come. The NYPD says that it has been responding to complaints from every borough and is offering a $100 reward for tips on illegal bike locations. So far in 2021, there have been 322 illegal vehicle seizures, along with about 7,500 summonses issued out. So I think the NYPD is creating an outlaw mentality, said Isha Siku, director of the nonprofit group Street Corner Resources. There's this whole thing about, we're going to get you. And with the bikers, you're not going to get us. Siku is in Harlem, uh, is a Harlem community activist who has been battling to legitimize the urban sport for years. It's racism. Stop skirting what is happening to black and Latino males, she said. If they ride, and they ride in the street, they're terrorizing the community. White boys go out and ride on Long Island. They're not terrorizing the community. You don't hear anything about it. They ride the same damn dirt bikes. And when uh, CQ says that building the park would create safe space for bikers to ride, the idea hasn't gotten much traction, much the frustration of the riders themselves. No, I ride bikes. I just want to ride the bike, Ben Moore said. I don't want problems. I just want to ride. Simple man. Simple man. Simple words. It's like we're caught just to ride in the streets. This is all we have. What are you going to tell me? You're going to tell me nothing. I'm going to ride today, and I'm going to ride tomorrow. Force of nature. Can't stop them. Super. And that's kind of the thing like where a lot of uh, call them normies or straight-laced people or professionals. They just don't know how to handle immature people. And, of course, they're immature in their own ways in that they can't seem to think of a creative or out-of-the-box solution like uh, actually providing space for people who are using spaces the way you don't want to use them. Now, they're using X the wrong way. Well, is there a place where they can do it the right way? Oh, there isn't. So shut up, please. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll freely admit, I'm very annoyed too. 
But until the city, like the skaters, devotes space to dirt bike riding, like you could build a dirt bike course, right? It, it could be great. You, you got the, the, the swales and you put in the, the bumps and, and it's like it can get all muddy and you put the you plop down the hay bales. I mean, you can make a big race course, you know, and then you can have a big loop around that. It'd be great. It'd be like um, that setup in um, the motocross, you know, stadium events. Similar to, you know, skate skating. And I got a perfect place in my hometown, Albany. Um, we have a municipal golf course that I think could use a facelift. I mean, really, just take out two holes. That that could be big enough for like a kind of good bike course, or have a um, a long track that goes loops around the whole property, which is very large, and that's like your your bike range. Now, of course, the golfers would probably hate all that noise. Fine, fine. Forget the golf. We don't need golf anymore. Uh, we we got other golf courses, but we don't. So maybe I'll look at like how much space it really takes and then superimpose that and then show a picture of that to my local council and say like, because actually my local city council, when I was um, listening on and one of their, it's rare, I know, but I was, I was, I was listening to one of the planning committee's meetings and they had mentioned, and this was back in May or June that the people in charge of the golf course for the city, I don't know if it's a third party or it's DGS or particular group of guys in DGS, that's general services, they were due to submit a kind of redevelopment plan, you know, uh, ways to upgrade or reimagine the golf municipal golf course. They haven't submitted Jack Squat, and it was due like this year after 10 years, and they still haven't submitted anything. So they're like, uh, can we talk to these guys about like doing their job and submitting something to us for to review and i'm wondering like hey redevelop the golf course there's a lot of cool stuff that could go in that land that uh for the next generation of people that because obviously millennials and anyone younger not interested in golf i'm sure that i know there's lots of golfers that like we need to train up the next generation of golfers we need to show the kids just like tiger woods made it semi-popular a little bit it's interesting to think about like how certain professions, you know, they want to replicate and make sure that they're around for the next generation or that, you know, so they have a job, <laughs> people to train, you know, and of course it's a sport. They love it. They want other people to love it, but there's other golf courses and surely we can have both. And I wonder anyway, last, uh, last little bit here. So bike advocates are hoping a new mural administration that's the um, former cop Adams, uh, will be more receptive. In the meantime, bike life sports continues to grow as Bentmore will be holding an event at a track in upstate New York on July 25th and one in Atlanta on August 1st. That was, that's already passed already, but hey, whatever. They're ongoing. Bike life sports. Bike life sports. All right. On to more, like... What should we really be doing here? Okay. So from the Streets blog USA, Twin Cities figured out the formula for increasing bus ridership. Back to Minneapolis. Hater of police. <laughs> I, I can't. On the A-line, riders can board at any door. Buses get priority at traffic lights, and stops are spaced every half mile. 
That's a summary. So um, filed by Ann Angie Smith, filed at the end of April in 2018. I say this either a long time ago or it was filed then. But hey, still, uh, still in our times. So the reviews are in for the Twin Cities' first enhanced bus route, the A-Line. The riders want more. Metro Transit calls the service arterial bus rapid transit. If you haven't heard this before, it's bus rapid transit. It's a hot new thing, and uh, basically because you don't have to build any new rail. It has all the inefficiencies of buses, uh, but all the efficiencies of kind of streamlining how it moves. So it's not moving like a car, but it's moving more like a light rail. So even though the A-Line has no dedicated right-of-way as it runs along Snelling Avenue, instead the A-Line has features that should be more common on most bus routes, so they can be more universalized. So riders pay before boarding and can get on the bus at any door. Peak service runs at least every 10 minutes, like a subway would. Buses do not have to merge back into traffic after picking up riders. After consolidating stops, the A-Line now stops about every half mile along a 10-mile route. It's like an express bus. Traffic's, traffic signals hold green... And that's also like... a sub, They move like subways rather than buses that stop every block. And sometimes like... Um, some routes or services go halfway where they just lower the amount of stops. So it's like every other block. So it does lessen the amount of stopping and starting, which saves some time, uh, makes it move a little faster. Much faster, in fact. Could, you could say it doubles it, depending on how many people it has to pick up and drop off. So anyway, the traffic signals hold green lights for buses, and the stations are well-equipped with shelters and displays and bike racks. Ridership has thus increased 30% since uh, spending the $27 million for the upgrades for this particular line. So that's kind of the rough cost uh, of a you know five-mile express line, $30 million. Seems like a lot, but compared to the billion spent on highways or putting in whole lines of, of like rail and things like that. So anyway, the director of the Transit Advocacy Group East Metro, Metro Strong, uh, working with, uh, this, this is what he's written, working with Better Buses, MSP, an organization supported by the Minneapolis Regional, Regional Chamber of Commerce, the St. Paul Area Chamber of Congress, blah, blah, blah. They produced this video. There are 12 other bus routes in line for the same type of upgrade, and the success of the A-Line seems to be opening up a path for more of those projects to get implemented. Now, an aside, that what really will speed up, a lot of these cities have to do these one at a time because they kind of have to wait for the funding stream where they only get enough a year from the Fed to do one line a year. But a massive infrastructure bill that, like the one Biden's pushing, whatever, the Biden infrastructure bill, it shouldn't really be about maintaining just the roads and the highways. Uh, it should be you know, quadrupling or, you know, magnitudes more so that these cities, these metropolitan areas can upgrade their bus rapid transit systems all at once, or they can do it within five years instead of 15, 20 years, which is kind of the rate that it's taking. It's really quite like, you know, like here in Albany, the gap between our first rapid uh, bus BTR service, uh, the red line and the, building out and the activation of the blue line that connects Albany to Troy 
the red line goes between Albany and Schenectady, thus actually creating a Tri-City area. Though now we kind of need a bus rapid transit that connects Troy to Schenectady, and that would kind of... Now you got a full triangle. The difference has been, like, I think eight years. Eight, seven years. I'll have to look it up. But it's, it felt like forever. Right? It wasn't like this year the red line, this year the blue line, next year the green line, which will actually still be more in Albany and actually much shorter, but it will connect all of the kind of big complexes and sorts. So anyway, Governor Mark Dayton has proposed $50 million in bonding for similar improvements to other bus routes, and the Pioneer Press gave this approach a resounding endorsement, saying the A-Line is a good value that can be replicated quickly and help the region meet the needs of its growing population. More recommended reading today, Bike Portland says Mayor Ted Wheeler can't call himself a climate change mayor and still back pricey urban highway widening, which apparently is doing, which is still happening, by the way. There should really be kind of a full stop memorandum on widening any highways. And the fact that they're still occurring, there's still this widening of roads, like more lanes are really the freaking answer to anything. It's, ugh, I hate it. I hate it. You should hate it too. Also, Pedestrian Observations looks at how commute travel patterns differ between high-income and low-income workers. Saucy. Okay, last story of the day. This is from Forbes. So notice, like, you know, no actual radical sources this week. Seems to happen when I'm covering these actual kind of meat and potatoes issues. <laughs> hmm, what does that say? File from Birmingham in the UK, not Alabama. But this is the UK's motor city of Spaghetti Junction fame. But they want to reduce the number of car journeys in the city. Let me actually get to the title. Birmingham reveals radical Ghent-style plan to cut car addiction. Filed by Colton Reed as a subheading, uh, I've been writing about transport for 30 years. And this is filed in the sustainability section, though Forbes, capitalism, sustainability, of course, I've argued incessantly, don't really go together. But let's hear what this man has to write about, particularly uh, local planning and cutting car addiction, which I'm all for. The allocation of road space will change away from single occupancy private cars, promises the new plan that launched um, early, early in the year. The idea is to move people, not vehicles, adds the draft master plan, saying that in the near future, there has to be a preference for mass transit and active modes. Currently, a quarter of all car journeys in Birmingham are one mile or less. To discourage such use and reduce congestion and improve air quality, and of course, low carbon emissions, maybe. Birmingham City Council plans to introduce a motor traffic circulation plan similar to the one in the Belgian city of Ghent, implemented in 2017. Officials divide the Belgian city into six zones through signage and hard infrastructure, meaning like uh, the speed bumps, for example. Motorists were diverted onto distributor roads rather than being able to drive directly from zone to zone. Furthermore, a small central zone, including much of the old town, was closed to cars completely, fully pedestrianized, uh, except for emergency vehicles, of course. Driving in the six outer zones, or cells, was still possible, but the car journeys 
would be made longer. Hmm. So it's like, oh, you're punishing people for driving? Yeah, because driving is harmful to everybody. All that's gained is convenience. But you know what's really inconvenient? Not having a civilization anymore. You know what's inconvenient? Three-month droughts. You know what's inconvenient? Massive storms, heat waves that melt, wiring. <laughs> I find natural disasters really inconvenient. Way more inconvenient than not owning a car. Pedestrians and cyclists were not subject to the same restrictions, of course, and could travel swiftly into central Ghent. Because of this ease of use and fuel cars, there was a massive jump in the amount of people who cycled in the Flanders city, rising 60% between 2016 and 18. This surprised the planners, who had assumed such a figure would not be realized until their plan's end date of 2030. Amazing. People adapt very well. They're resilient. People are worth trusting, especially when you put them in better conditions and good planning or planning that does things differently to restrict the antisocial behavior engine that is car dependence. Erlingham's plan is good through until 2031 and includes the creation of an already announced clean air zone, restricting road use by vehicles powered by petrol, gas, or diesel. The new plan also incorporates existing ones for a workplace parking levy, a.k.a. a commuter tax, which would charge the city's businesses, ah, but it's taxing the the, the businesses, the owners, the landlords, 500 pounds per parking space. So instead of charging people based on how much they use spaces, charge people by having parking spaces. Because the parking space is costing the public realm, even when it's not being used as a parking space. Because for the most part, you know, most of the time, a parking space is empty. It's not only empty half the time, like when no one's working. But, I mean, most parking spaces go unused. So such a scheme was successfully used in Nottingham to part pay for the extension of its uh, half-a-billion-dollar tram network. Birmingham's proposed traffic cell plan would mean motorists wanting to make car journeys between quadrants would be directed out onto the Midway Road ring. So, so it's kind of like, if you're going to go from one side of town to another, you're going to use the Ring Road Highway. You're not going to drive using local roads. I find that interesting. Since here in Albany, at least when it comes to my parents and other people I've driven with, kind of do that normally. But even when I'm in the car, I have a habit of using local streets and not using Highway Ring Road, which does, in fact, like I, I compare it to a noose around the city, choking us off from nature and basically all the other uh, street grids that exist. So Ghent's traffic circulation plan is based on much earlier ones introduced in Dutch cities, including during the 70s and 80s, you know, a switch that they made very deliberately. The first was uh, Gornington, which, against much local opposition, divided the city center into four quadrants. Private motor traffic could only go from one quadrant to another via the road ring, and a system of one-way streets was installed literally overnight. Two-thirds of all journeys in Groningham, sorry, not Ham, Groningen, 
are now done by bicycle, and no business owner would want cars to dominate the city again. So though opposition was uh, there, it was brief. It was temporary. Because, I mean, cha change is kind of scary and, and disruptive, but if it's for the better, Birmingham has recently designed uh, for more active modes of transport travel. The A38, a key access road in the city, was upgraded last year to include a protected cycleway, partly repurposed from a former tram line dug up in the 50s. In a blog post published last year, Claire Resheim Zaffer, cabinet member for Transport and Environment, said Birmingham ne needed to become a place where walking, cycling, and using green public transport are the best and most preferred ways to travel, reducing our reliance on private cars. In a foreword for the new plan, Zaffer has not tempered his views. The city must change if it wants to avoid gridlock, the true answer to congestion. Overdependence on private cars is bad for the health of ourselves and our families, bad for our communities, bad for business, as measured by the millions of pounds lost in productivity caused by congestion. He added that car use is bad for the future because of the very significant damage caused by vehicle emissions and their impacts on climate change. Instead, stress the city's transport lead, the more journeys we take by walking and cycling, the more we will improve our air quality and all other types of congestion, maybe even nose congestion, kind of causes a lot of sleep problems in a lot of us. For former journeys, longer journeys, buses, trams, and trains will be the backbone of a new go-anywhere transport system. The Birmingham Transport Plan is not yet done deal. It goes out to public consult consultation at the end of January. It is probable there will be much opposition to the plans, especially for motorists and the businesses who think that they rely on customers, but on business from motorists. Again, um, perception, and perhaps a delusion. Retailers in many countries believe the majority of people travel to their stores by car. Study after study has shown this to be largely incorrect. When quiz Retailers often overstate the numbers who they think drive and understate modes such as walking and cycling and other transit. Removing cars from shopping streets often increases trade. For instance, a 2015 study in Queen Westry in Toronto found that half of the local business owners, owners estimated that more than a quarter of their customers arrived by car. In fact, it was only 4%. And the number of those who walked, 72. Similarly, looking to Madrid, as they closed their central district to cars in 2018, resulted in a 10% boost to retail spending. This was found in an analysis of 20 million transactions. Officials in the Dutch city of The Hague were met with fierce resistance in 73 when they announced plans to install cycleways on th three major shopping streets, you know, the beginning of it all. At the scheme's first public meeting, local shopkeepers, backed by the Municipal Chamber of Commerce, complained that restraining motor traffic would result in reduced turnover. Angry shopkeepers protested at blocking an intersection with their cars, and they only backed down when they were offered compensation should the cycleway lead to a loss in their business. Cycleways were duly opened, but none of them ever had a cause to apply for compensation. In fact, since their construction, they had an increase in business. This was seen in New York over and over again, too. It's funny, like it happened in the 70s. Why didn't anyone notice this? So, so let's see. So according to Zaffer, Birmingham wants to build a future in which the car will no longer be king. 
Here, here, here. So, I'm going to end the show on that happy, positive note. Every American city should have such a plan as Birmingham. I probably need to bring this to the attention of my local government, although I've never really had an inkling that they ever listened to me, so I've kind of been tuning out the last uh, in the years since I ran for mayor and then started this show, so I kind of, instead of talking to the council, I kind of talked to all of you, the listeners, instead. Let's form a government of ourselves. How about that? Okay, now for the housekeeping. First, uh, I'll go for the general. You can find this podcast on all kinds of podcast apps. This is podcasted the uh, last 10 episodes on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and all the rest. Uh, anywhere you find podcasts. But for the rest of the show, you can go to 3lefts.news. That's my main website where I have a full archive of episodes. And I am retooling slash adding to my list of sources and info and sites that you can visit if you'd like to learn more about anything I talk about or where I got my news articles, so on and so on. What else? I'm on social media. I encourage all to contact me, tell me what you think, words of encouragement. We all need some validation from people, whatever, strangers. Just, even just say hi. Even just say hi. So on um, Facebook, uh, Mastodon, on Twitter, which I don't post on, you know, don't look for like massive posting from me, okay? Okay, but it is a line of communication. There's also the email, three left show at Gmail. What else? There is also Twitch, which, uh, as I mentioned, I was on a um, panel discussion on Twitch. More will come there. More does happen there. There is YouTube, which I don't really post to. And again, I need to work out how to effectively share the things that I do uh, with other people on the things that are mine. Otherwise, I can simply share what I've done with others. Easy peasy, right? Uh, Otherwise, uh, so thank you very much. Keep, uh, please go to your local government, raise some hell about these issues. We all deserve better cities, cleaner, and I would consider more convenient. Toodles. Keep waving the flags of the three lefts. Take care.